Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So as we continue with our study in the book of Exodus, and we're in the introduction part, we continue with thinking about the meaning of the names of the brothers and sister books to the book of Exodus. And as we've mentioned, they have various names, but there's one book, one name that has a very special meaning, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Greek, and it comes from two words put together. The first word, do, is like we would say in Spanish, dos. It means second. Deuteronomy, the word means second law. And it comes from, this name is really coming from one verse in the book of Deuteronomy, which is very, very interesting. It comes from the verse Deuteronomy 17, 18. And here's what it says. It says, and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom. So, you get the picture here. Here is the king of Israel. He's sitting on the throne of his kingdom, and God is telling him what he should do as he's sitting on his throne. And you could imagine in your mind, what should a king do when he sits on his throne? God says, I'll tell you what he should do. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. So here is this incredible scene of the king of Israel with all of his responsibilities. And what is he doing? He's sitting there, he's writing. He's writing himself. It's not somebody else who's doing that. It's himself, and he's writing a copy. The copy, the word copy in Hebrew is the word Mishnah. He's writing a Mishnah, a duplicate, a second copy of the law. That's something for us really to think about. To help us to get that, what's happening here as he's writing that, I want to tell you about something very, very interesting in Japan. You know, I started visiting in Japan in 1982 for business. Sometimes I'd go twice a year, most of the time once a year. And as our business then expanded, we got more and more involved in Japan. In the year 2000, we opened up an office just outside of of Tokyo. And from the moment that I started to go to Japan since 1982, I had this love for the Japanese people. And I was just so happy for the opportunity to just interact with them as people so that the fact that we had no business there, and that went on for 15 years, it didn't bother me. For 15 years since I owned the company, I didn't have to tell anybody why I kept going to Japan for 15 years when there was no business there, but I did. 
And I went year after year after year for 15 years. Why did I go for 15 years if there was no business? I was a businessman because I was in God's business. And God's business was to love the Japanese people and to bring the knowledge of God to them. And so this was an opportunity for me to get to know, to interact with Japanese businessmen. And I took an interest in them and in their lives and And that's what went on for 15 years. Well, gradually, I was also looking at the fact that, boy, they're just not doing any business here for 15 years. And I began to understand that Japanese businessmen view foreigners with suspicion. They just don't trust them. But since I kept coming back year after year, And company, we would have meetings, and companies would always keep their diary of the minutes of the meeting. There was one company in particular called Nisui. And Nisui had noted that I kept coming back year after year. And they had this one particular project that they needed to have done. And they chose our company to do it. And I was a little bit amazed at this, to be honest with you, because I knew the other competitors that they were evaluating, and I knew that some of my competitors were more competent, were better, had more experience than my company did. And so I wondered, why did they choose Scanabodies as a company to do business with? And they told me it was because we opened up the diary of our business meeting minutes, And we saw that you kept coming to our company for 10 years. This had gone on for about 10 years. For 10 years, you kept coming year after year after year. And they said, you didn't get any business during those 10 years, but you kept coming and coming and coming. And you were just as interested in the meeting the 10th year as you were in the first year. And we had noted all that down in our diary. And we thought like this. If this is a person and this is a company which will continue to come back year after year for 10 years when there is no business, when times get rough in doing business together, this is a company that will not head for the hills or run away and abandon, but will be faithful to keep on coming back. So okay. So then as we got into the business together, they became evident that they were making overtures to break down this wall of suspicion, this distrust that they just naturally had in foreign people. And what they would do, what they did is they said, look, you know, when you come uh, twice a year here to Japan, carve out a weekend for us every time you come. And so I did. And on those weekends, they and their top managers and I, we would go away for a weekend to a resort, uh, usually a mountainside resort. And during this time in the resort place, we would spend together and we would not talk about business. That was an unwritten rule. Not talk about business, but just get to know each other. And we would talk until late at night and we would joke and we would play games together. And there were in some of these resorts, bowling alleys and places for archery. And we would eat in these buffet style type of settings. And there was always these very beautiful outdoor hot springs called onsens. And so we went to several of these resorts, several of these beautiful outdoor onsens hot springs, and we soaked together. And at the end of the weekend, we really felt that we got to know each other better. Well, 
I came to find out as I did more and more work in Japan that those resorts, those onsens, those hot springs are very, very important for building relationships. And the oldest hot spring in Japan, in fact, the oldest hot spring in the world, is called Zengoro Hoshi. And it's on the west side of Japan, and it was founded in the year 718 by the Zengoro Hoshi family. The resort has been in the Zengoro Hoshi family for 46 generations. Think about that, 46 generations. That means for 46 generations, the resort has been passed down to a male descendant in the Zengoro Hoshi name. The owner has maintained the Zengoro Hoshi name for 46 generations. Now, family business in Japan, it's different in the U.S. Family business under the name, under the supervision, under the ownership and guidance of the family a business, it's very, very important in Japan. Why? Because in Japan, people trust people. People don't trust corporations. People trust people in the corporations. And if a corporation is a family business, then the customer feels more confident to engage in business with that company. So it's very, very important because the thinking is that if a corporation fails, well, that's some kind of a distant thing with shareholders and things like that. Who knows who they are? But if a family business fails to live up to its expectation, then that means that the family name loses face, which is very, very serious in Japan. That's why in Japan, more than 90% of the businesses are family businesses under the family name. As a matter of fact, there are over 30,000 businesses in Japan that have been under the same family for more than 100 years. Over 30,000 businesses in Japan under the same family for more than 100 years. So when we think of names like Honda, Toyota, Suzuki, Kawasaki, and Nissan, we think cars, right? But those are actually the names of families. Those are the names of Japanese families. When we think soy sauce, we think Kikoman, Kikoman soy sauce. Kikoman is the name of a family in Japan. Now, another thing that was very, very evident as I started to do more and more business in Japan was the total absence of women in any sort of management position. I can't remember going to a business meeting in Japan and there being a woman there as a manager, a top manager. I never heard of a woman being the head of a company. As a matter of fact, in Japan, only a son can legally pass on the family name, like here as well. Only a son can legally pass on the family name. Okay, so with all of this setting, here's a common problem. Here we have a family business in Japan. The founder has all the passion that was necessary to build the business, to get it started. And so the company business typically does very well in the first generation under the founder. But in Japan and also elsewhere as well, it's not uncommon for there to be problems with the second and subsequent generations. Why? Because the sons and the grandsons, they may not be 
interested, they may not be competent, to continue to run the family business. And in Japan, the first priority, if there's a family business, is the continuation of the family business. So what do you do if you have a second, in the second generation, the third generation, you have a son, grandson, that has no interest, has no passion, or maybe has no competence to run the family business when the first priority of the business of the family in Japan is the continuation of the family business under the family name. Now, on average in Japan, a family will have one child. Uh, Sometimes they have more, and sometimes that child is a daughter who cannot legally pass on the family name. Or sometimes a family may have three daughters and have no sons. Or sometimes, as we mentioned, a family may have sons who are either not interested or not competent to run the family business. For example, some of those 46 generations in the Zengoro Hoshi Hot Springs family business, some of those 46 generations, they didn't have any sons. And in this case, when there is no son or there is no son suitable to run the family business, the family will resort to adoption of a full-grown man. For several generations where there were no sons in the Zengoro Hoshi family, they adopted full-grown men to take over the family business and to adopt the family name. And the Zengoro Hoshi family is not the only family that resorted to adopting full-grown men. Japan has the second highest adoption rate, more than 80,000 per year. Most of those adoptions are adult men in their 20s and 30s. They're adopted by the wife's family, typically, and the main reason for the adoption is so that they can then take on the family name and take over the family business under the family name. For example, there's a family that owns a steel trading business, and that family has three daughters. And one of the daughters loved her father so much that she vowed that she would only date men who were first interviewed by her father as a suitable person to take over the family business and was willing to be adopted by the family. And that way, she'll be able to present to her family not only grandchildren, but also a new son to take over the family business. For several generations, this family in the steel trading business has solved this problem by adopting their son-in-law, and in that way, they kept the business going in Japan. It's been observed in Japan that a family business that is run by the son-in-law that was adopted, in many cases, actually goes much better than if the family uh, business was run by the biological son. And we already talked about that. The reason is because the founder has the ability to choose the successor of the son-in-law, whereas the biological sons, there is no choice. And it's even been that if a father has sons or daughters, that the success of the business being such a high priority, he might look for a husband for his daughter that was more capable to run the business than any of his sons, and then he would adopt him. Now, here's what happens to an adopted son. He takes on the name of his new family, and he takes on the responsibility to take care of his new parents. And when they get old, he will take care of them. 
when his biological parents get old, he does not take care of them. He has made a complete change. When he dies, he will be buried with his new family that adopted him and not be buried with his old biological family. So in Japan, there are actually companies, matchmaking companies, who look for men who are looking for both a wife and to be legally adopted into a family in order to take over the family business where there are only daughters or where the father is looking for a more competent person. So you can actually see on these websites pictures of women who are looking for husbands, and some say that the man must have an accounting background so he can be adopted and take over the family business. Now, I want you to think of the father of the family and the different stages that he goes through in this adoption process. First, because he knows what's on the table, everybody does, he meets the grown man who will become his new son. And then both of them take time to get to know each other, to learn everything they can about each other. He is learning everything about this person who will become his son, who will not just only become his son, but who will take over what he has poured his life into, the family business, the highest priority. Then, as he learns more and more about him in this process, he grows to love this grown man who will become his new son. And finally, when the day comes, he adopts the grown man with his own choice, with the knowledge of him, with the love of him, as his very own son to carry his name and to take over the family business. As you think of those steps, think of how emotional that is. Think of how dramatic the transition is from going from that first meeting of a total stranger, of a grown man, to then seeing him as a son, not just a son-in-law, but the son, the son, who will inherit what the father has poured himself into, the family business. That transition from being first introduced as a stranger is exactly what goes on in the king of Israel as he sits there. First, the Levites. Picture the Levites, the priest. They bring him the scroll that he is to use as the master from which he'll copy. And as he looks at that scroll, think of it as being introduced to the full-grown man. And it's a stranger to him. But he knows what he's going to do. He's going to adopt this Bible, this scroll, this word of God is going to become embedded in his heart with a love, a deep love. And so it's just like that. And so that was the reason why God told Israel in Deuteronomy 17, 18, he says, it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write a copy of the law of the book out of that which is before the priest, the king. You know, the king was a very busy man. You can just imagine how many items were on his to-do list. He had the whole kingdom to run. Think of what he was responsible for. Everyone in his kingdom should be provided for. They should have food. They should have water. That overall, the economy was good and the people were not selling themselves into slavery because they were being overwhelmed with debt. That was his responsibility. His responsibility was that with the trading with the neighbor countries, that it would be positive and that his people in his country were not becoming indebted to them. 
that the defenses, the military defenses of this country were strong enough against attack from enemies, that he had a strong intelligence system so that he was always the first to know about threats, both internal and external to his country, to his rulership, that he was choosing, that he was spending enough time with faithful, reliable men who were going to work with him in the running of his country. He was responsible for that. He also had to take time to spend with his family. He had to make sure that his people were being faithful to God so that his people were not sinning and bringing on the judgment and wrath of God against his country. So all these matters of his own family, his personal life, domestic matters, foreign matters, all fell to him. And it was so easy for him to say, I don't have time for the word of God, just like with us. Just like with us, it's so easy, and we don't have even a fraction of the responsibilities of a king of Israel. But nevertheless, the temptation for him, the temptation for us is the same, is to say, I don't have time. It was very easy for him to say, I don't have time to spend with God. I am the king, and I have a lot of responsibilities. But God said to him the very thing, that same thing that he said to me in business, the phrase, you take care of my business, I will take care of your business. What was his business? The country. You take care of my business, I will take care of your country. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So with all his responsibilities, with all our responsibilities, God told the king that he needed to take time every day to go through an adoption process, an adoption where the word of God would become embedded in his heart and it would be his word. And he was to write a copy of the word of God. How did he write the copy of the word of God? Slowly, carefully, thinking about each word, all the sentences, what they meant, what the implications of them were, just like the father sitting down with the full-grown man who he's going to adopt, and he's asking him questions about himself, and he's learning about him, and he's thinking about him, and he's listening with such an intensity, the father is, because he's going to adopt him, and he's going to take over the family name, and he's going to take over the family business. That's the picture of how the king was viewing the word of God as he copied it, as a process of adoption. This is exactly the same meaning that God meant when he told Joshua. Turn to that, if you have that handy, Joshua 1.8. Here, Joshua is being, the baton has just been passed to him. Moses has died. Joshua is taking over. And in Joshua 1.8, God says to him, this book of the law, that would be the Torah, the first five books of Moses, this book of the law, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now here was instructions that was given to the leader of over two million Jewish people. Joshua, how busy can we claim to be compared to a man who was responsible for two million people on the move? 
How much can we say is on our to-do list compared to the man who had to move over 2 million people through hostile territories, conquering them region by region so that the people could be established, they could have their own land, they could have their own cities, and all along the way to make sure that they're cared for. That's a lot of responsibility. And to this leader, God said, I'm going to help you. You got to listen to me because I'm going to give you the way. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 